There we go. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this hour. I think we're in for a real treat, and I think you've made a tremendous decision to be here for the next hour. I know I am, I'm so looking forward to what Lord Dr. Michael Hastings will be saying to us. You know, we're really privileged to have him. Um, such a wealth of experience of bringing his faith and who he is in Christ into such senior spheres of influence. Uh, his background involvement with the World Economic Forum that's held in Davos and various councils of authority that he sits at the table with world leaders. He sits at the table at boards of enormous organizations like UNICEF and Tear Fund and Vodafone. Uh, you know, I could never do a, a, a just introduction uh, for this great man standing next to me. He has a peerage in the House of Lords, and um, he mentors so many folks and is so generous with his time and with his wisdom. And uh, I know I'm, I'm really grateful for the generosity of your time today being with us. So please join me in, in a hearty David Stent welcome for Lord Dr. Michael Hastings. Well, Eric, thank you. And one of the things that was very special about wandering around with Eric a little bit earlier on was the number of people who stopped him to thank him for what you did yesterday. And I'm sure some of you sat in on Eric's talk on suffering, and I think we should thank him for being a man of grace. Um, so as, as Eric has used um, some of my titles, uh, <laughs> I've got a lot at the front and a lot at the back. Um, so I'll tell you a true story, uh, which, which sort of might reveal some attitudes and prejudices you never know, but it's, it's a true story. And um, so my formal title is uh, The Right Honourable uh, Baron, the Lord Dr. Hastings of Scarisbrick, commander of the British Empire. That's the whole thing. And, and uh, so, uh, what happened, um, oh dear me, six or seven years ago was uh, a family holiday to Los Angeles. And then, because of um, KPMG's relationship with the Hollywood studios, I asked for a, a VIP tour of the Warner Brothers studios. So we were given this, we were to be given this VIP tour and um, went in with the kids and we went in to the VIP entrance and up to the desk. And there was, and you won't mind me, I'll just tell it raw so you can take it as it is, don't get offended by anything I say. Um, and there was sitting behind the desk a very typical black American lady in her mid-40s actually painting her nails. And uh, she looked up and she said, what do you want? And <laughs> so I said to her, well, we're here for a VIP tour. And she said, I need some ID. So I, I, I produced my passport out to the 
my backpack, and it's got the whole, all the, the whole thing on it. So, so she looked at the passport, and she pointed out the, the Lord, and she said, what's this? So I said, it's a, it's a title. And she said, why is there a typo in a passport? And I, so I said, no, 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 no. It, it, it's not a typo. It's a title. It's a description of who I am. At which point she dropped the passport, stood up and said, are you Jesus? <laughs> so I could have had all her money at that point. I could have run away with, you know, I don't know what. But uh, <laughs> so I, I assured her I was not. But I, I was hoping I might be a bit more like Jesus by the end of the, the time with her. So um, I want to talk to you a, a bit about politics, influence, power, as it were, in the world, but kingdom power. And then maybe we can have a bit of a dialogue and you can... Uh, say a few things or ask some questions or make some comments. I realize that um, whenever you talk about politics, it's one of the most difficult and divisive things to talk about in any spiritual church Christian setting. Because people come with a lot of weighty, I would say weighty misunderstanding and a lot of anger connected to that misunderstanding. And um, it won't surprise you if I say that it, whether you're an MP in the House of Commons, and of course, MPs are responsible to their constituents. So you write to your MP, they are meant to respond to you. Um, we in the House of Lords are not responsible to anyone in the public. We're accountable to the Crown. So if you write to me, I don't have to reply. <laughs> so it's just the way it is. But um, I can't tell you the agonizing letters we all get. And they carry huge anxiety. Uh, most of them coming from followers of Jesus who are just furious about something in the government, something in the nation, something in the world. And it's a blame game. And all the blame rests on us and we're not adequate and we don't this, and usually they're in capital letters in red or green ink. <laughs> Very funny. Um, and I do read most of them, and I don't reply, just because another lot is going to come the next day, and on and on it goes. And what it tells you is how very disconnected people feel from the political system and from politicians and from how we make decisions and why we make decisions. So I want to try and open that up a little bit for you and, and hopefully it will be helpful and hope it will further engage you as we go along. I wanted just to give you a little Hebrew word to get you thinking and urge you to kind of look it up um, when you, oops, just disappeared off my, oh dear. Anyway, it's the Hebrew word, it, it's avodah, and it's the Old Testament word, A-V-O-D-A-H, avodah. It's the Old Testament word which stands for three things. It means exactly the same three things in every context where it's used in the Old Testament. To sacrifice before God. 
So to bring worship, oneself, in the Old Testament context, to bring animals, to bring physical things of sacrifice, was avodah. The same word is the word that is used to describe from Genesis to Malachi the work that men and women must do. So the sacrifice of worship and the work of our day are the same thing. But it also means to make decisions that empower work and worship. And that is where politics comes in. So it's important that we don't separate. There is a, fr a phrase that goes around in churchy circles of the secular and the spiritual. And biblically, there is no such thing. There is no such thing. The work of our hands, the Tuesday, 9 to 7, or 4 in the morning till 10, depending on what you do, or the study for university, or the grind, I think, immediately of one of our, one of our lovely brothers in our network who works on the railways every night. When he starts work at 11.30 at night and finishes at 7.30 in the morning, what he does is worship. Do you get that? The work of our hands is worship. And so too is the process we use to make decisions. Now, many of you, if, if um, thankfully we're all here to be in the presence of Jesus, so we're not sweating about church titles and whether anybody has them. And it was quite funny, actually. I, I hosted a gathering in the House of Lords um, for a whole lot of um, black bishops and pastors, and 150 of them came from all sorts of different church streams. And this was for Tear Fund, which I'm vice president of. And, they, and so they all came for this evening. And whenever they got up to speak, they all began with introducing their long titles. And they were bishop of this and pastor of that and all the rest of it. And halfway through, I got up and said, listen, guys, I haven't told you my lot. So if I don't tell you my lot, can you stop telling me your lot? And how do you just call yourself your first name? So I'm Michael. What's you? Who are you? And the struggle they had to drop the titles was unbelievable. They were spitting it out still until I kept on rebuking them. So many of us, we could all come here and we could all say, you know, I'm from this church, whatever, that church, whatever, the next church, whatever. Um, are you and I here inside the very thing Jesus said would be built on the foundation of the rock himself, allied to, of course, the word Cephas for Peter, but the very foundation, the ecclesia in the Greek. What is the ecclesia that he would build? Well, it doesn't mean church. Do you know what it really means? It's the same word in Hebrew for synagogue. 
And what it means is the gathering place of those who come together under authority to make decisions for the community around them. Whoa. That's called the local council. <laughs> the same word for synagogue in the Old Testament is ecclesia in the Greek. And it's the same word that means the governance of the community, the council. When people gathered in a synagogue, they didn't come together to hear reading, sing, and go out. They came together to make decisions, having heard the word and worshipped together, to make decisions that met the needs of the community beyond them. Which is why in the book of Acts, the new gathering of believers, who were all just monumentally growing in numbers, what do they decide to do very early on but to appoint a man, Acts chapter 9, to appoint a man full of the spirit of Jesus and grace to do what? To meet the needs of the widows, the orphans, and the poor, to provide for the homeless, and to organize the believers to meet those needs. Because that's what they did in the synagogue. You see? So we shouldn't disconnect these realities of the church and the world. Biblically, that's not right. But also philosophically, if we disconnect what we call sacred and secular, we've entered two kingdoms, put a, put a division between them, and pushed ourselves on one side or the other, and usually then formed judgment, and, and entered a huge tension into how we think about, how we respond to, and what we do. So just take that word avodah into your, into your being. Spend time to understand Ecclesia. There's a wonderful tool called Google. <laughs> it's the greatest theological gift ever created. <laughs> you can go onto it. You can go onto, you can go onto Wikipedia. You can look them up. You, can <laughs> you don't have to go to Bible college anymore. The whole thing's laid out for you in a split second. Make sure your Wi-Fi is good, and there it is. <laughs> Now, I, I just want to pause for a minute to make sure you've got that. Because nothing else will make sense if you haven't got that. Sometimes when I get these green ink letters and these red ink letters, the interesting thing is that the letters which come with all the Bible verses on them are usually about one of two things. Uh, they're usually about some form of naughty sex and they're also, which parliament is discussing or not discussing or likely to discuss or whatever, and uh, they're about abortion or euthanasia. So they're always about the kind of sex stuff or the life stuff. And we get a lot of beating up about that. But what we don't get any beating up about are prisoners. 
We don't get any beating up about the homeless. We don't get any beating up about migrants and refugees. We don't get any beating up about the destitute and the poor. And I find that fascinating. The things that were central to the agenda of Jesus are not the things we get beaten up about, but the things that are fixations and fret points, more fret points. Uh, and fret means fear, the fear people carry about things they don't understand in the world around us. Those are the things that we get beaten up about. So again, I just want you to pull back and accept the commonality that worship of God, love of Jesus, work in the world, the work we all have to do, and the organization of those two things are in God's eyes the same. And I want that to liberate you so that you don't feel that either you are on the edge of minuscule insignificance every moment and you can't wait for Sunday. And once a year, you can't wait for David's tent because this is the place you will come to to get the infusion of worship. No, you're doing that on a Tuesday afternoon in the rain in the office. So the New Testament injunction to do everything we do, do everything we do as unto the Lord. Now, One other observation I, I would just make, um, if I can, as kindly as I can, uh, is, I mean, you know, Parliament is a contentious place. <laughs> and um, a lot of awkward things are said, and awkward behaviors are revealed, and the world is, is the media, the world are very judgmental of anyone in and around politics and Parliament. And I suppose it would be um, not unfair to say that in the believing community as a whole, uh, there isn't as much serious study of the issues, the detail or the policies that should inform decision-making as there is in the non-believing community. Yeah. I'm not going to ask you how many of you read at least one manifesto in the election of a few months ago, but it would probably be, if we're honest, quite an embarrassing revelation. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's one thing to get heated uh, about political policy, and then it's another thing maybe like, um, uh, just to mention him because he comes to mind, um, Jeremy Corbyn discovered that uh, his promises on the payment of all student fees was just a wee bit too expensive. But that was after the election, having drawn a multitude of millennial youth into the excitement of no more burdens of debt to then discover, <clears throat> can't pay for it. But that, uh, that absence of detail is a seduction. And in the seduction, 
it panders to sometimes the lowest and most vulnerable parts of our character. There was a, a wonderful um, German writer. I mean, if you're into serious theater, you'll go to Brecht plays. Most of us would be bored out of our head to go to, <laughs> I have to admit, I have been too. And they are very good for insomnia. But Brecht, being German, and uh, he died in 1956, um, so of course the period in which he wrote covered the First World War and the Second World Well, in fact, the Second World War. He was too young in the First World War. And of course he writes as a German living in East Germany about all the travails of a decision-making structure which nearly encompassed the world. And probably the most um, difficult thing that he ever wrote or said was a play on political dynamics. And I'll just read you what he said, and I, and I ask you to kind of think about where you are on this um, paradigm of reflection that he gives. The worst illiterate is the political illiterate. He hears nothing. He sees nothing. He takes no part in political life. He doesn't seem to know that the cost of living, the price of beans, the cost of flour, the charges of rent, of medicines, all depend on political decisions. He even prides himself on his political ignorance. He sticks out his chest and he says he hates politics. He doesn't know the imbecile that from his political non-participation comes the prostitute, the abandoned child, the robber, and worst of all, corrupt officials, the lackeys of exploitative multinational corporations. It's a kind of wow. You care about the state of your nation, your community, your city, your road, and you don't know how to vote, or whether to vote, or how to think and respond, or whether to organize and participate. Now, I don't need to tell you that we are living in an extremely turbulent political time. I've kept uh, two editions of uh, two different magazines. I didn't bring them because the headlines are very easy to tell you. One is the New Statesman, the other one is Time Magazine. Uh, news, the New Statesman, just a few weeks ago, its front page was the age of lies. Time Magazine, the same week, a US publication, New Statesman, a UK publication, Time Magazine, a US publication. So here we had the age of lies, and here we had the death of truth. And we are living through a period of profound, corrupt, prominent political deceit. We could get into it, and if you want to, we will. <laughs> but it might take us forever. Um, I'll just show you the front cover of 
last week's economist. Now, I hope none of you are wondering who that is. And I hope none of you are wondering why the megaphone has got two holes in a white hat. Does anybody not know where they like to be honest? And you don't know why? You're sure, you're the lady, you're not sure why? Let me turn the hat that way. Does it make sense? Do you get it? Do you know who the guy is? He's a hairdresser. And <laughs> certainly trump your barber. Um, and uh, <laughs> now, the events of Charlottesville just two weeks ago, the, the re-emergence of the neo-Nazi movements that we all had kind of hoped had gone away at the end of the Second World War, or if they hadn't, wasn't just that they'd gone away at the end of the Second World War, they had kind of dissipated realistically by seeing the end of apartheid in South Africa because of Nelson Mandela, because the pro-apartheid movement shared the same philosophy as Nazism, the supremacy of one race community over another. Or we thought it might have gone away when we saw the end of, in the 1990s, some of you who are uh, old enough, I recognize many of you are, <laughs> and um, you will have remembered the wars around um, the Balkan communities in the 1990s and the Kosovan War and all of that which saw a genocide again that was based on race differentials between one community and another. We kind of all thought that, that Nazism was finished. And then literally two weeks ago, in a southern town in the US, it all comes to life again. And the unpalatable, uncomfortable reality of what we witnessed in literally just a few thousand people from the Ku Klux Klan and the white supremacy and the Confederate movement, which wants essentially to affirm one central proposition, which is that a US, a great US, a recovered US, is a white nation. And the same dream has been held since 1932 in a rally held in Madison Square Gardens in which the Ku Klux Klan effectively exposed to then populist New York America that there was all the potential for keeping America pure and white. That movement has found, of course, its hero in Donald Trump. Now, I don't want to hang on that one because it'd be dead easy to. And uh, if, you, if you're into cinema going, which I'm sure many of you are, um, a couple of my sons were here, and I went last night to see Detroit. Uh, it's the latest of the uh, John Boyega films that's out. Um, go and see it. It's fact. It's not fiction. It's what happened. And watch it having gone on Google and looked at Charlottesville from two weeks ago and just ask yourself, what has changed? And I know you'll come to the same conclusion we did when the film ended and we sat there silent. 
You know when the credits start and you cannot get up? Because what you have seen is just the vivid, living, expressive reality of the same extreme far-right political nastiness. But here is, here is the more important point. Probably, um, probably the man accredited at the moment with being the smartest of all the world's economists. Uh, and I, 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 that wasn't my decision. That was the decision of the Economist magazine, which is sort of the erudite center of thinking for economic and political analysis. The Economist said just three years ago that the smartest living economist in the world is Professor Jeffrey Sachs from Columbia University and uh, in New York, and the man who worked intimately with Kofi Annan, the UN Secretary General, uh, and then subsequently with um, Ban Ki-moon and, and so on. And he wrote a very piercing article called Surviving America's Political Meltdown. And I just want to read you two paragraphs and then have you think about them. He's talking about really what has gone wrong in American politics. Now, don't just think American politics, because let's not get hung up on Trump and the White House and America and everything else. Let's think the UK, let's think our city, let's think you know, issues in the world beyond us. But he begins his article here, which is August the 11th, so it's very recent. He begins his article, the US is in the midst of a major political meltdown, unable to manage a domestic economic agenda or a coherent foreign policy. So let me go on to the two key paragraphs. There are two centers of power, he says, in Washington, D.C., the White House and the Capitol. Both of them are in disarray, but for different reasons. The dysfunction of the White House, he says, and I'm just reading what he says, so you know it's not me, it's him. The dysfunction of the White House is largely a matter of President Trump's personality. To many experts, Trump's behavior, Grandoy's self-regard, pathological lying, lack of remorse or guilt, expressive shallowness, parasitic lifestyle, impulsiveness, failure to accept responsibility for his own actions, and short-term marital relationships are symptoms of narcissistic personality disorder. You wouldn't want to get that in a birthday card, would you? But then he goes on to say, the consequences could be dire. Pathological narcissists have a tendency to indulge in violent conflicts and wars. At a minimum, Trump lacks the psychological characteristics needed for constructive governance. Honesty, dignity, competence, empathy, relevant experience, and the capacity to plan. According to some observers, Trump also shows signs of diminished mental capacity. Now, there are two things we need to take from that. First of all, the question, so how did he get to the White House, if that is true? 
And secondly, are those qualities of character still fundamental to good governance? Are they vital for politics? And if they are vital for politics, who then will carry those to the nation? So question one, if those things are true, how did he get to the White House? Now, there is more written about what happened in the American elections last year than we could spread across this entire site in printed out pages from laptops. Uh, there is analysis beyond belief. But here's a central thesis, and it has two streams to it. One stream is a nation battling with its historic identity. And that historic identity is racially defined and racially segregated. And the desire to restore a great America is about restoring a great white America. And a fear that that is consumed by the influx of people who are different, who once were the diminished slaves of broken communities from shattered countries far away for whom we held no responsibility. And in that, read our own crisis about migrants, immigrants, and those washing up on the shores of Europe on a daily basis in desperation, seeking to find at least the capacity for clean water, if nothing else. Since the beginning of this year, according to the best analysis, and I literally printed this off yesterday, since the beginning of this year, 5,000 people have drowned in the Mediterranean in the vast numbers of boats dragging people in huge numbers. In 2015, the number of international migrants and refugees reached 200 and 44 million, an increase of 71 million, or 41% up from the year 2000. The UN's International Labour Organization states almost 21 million people are victims of forced labour, including 11.4 million women and children, and 19 million victims are exploited by private individuals or enterprises, and of these, 4.5 million, 4.5 million are victims of forced sexual exploitation in a crime that now generates over $150 billion in revenue in illegal profits every year from traffickers. And that's Europe. That's what's happening in our borders, in our continent. And that is what lay behind Brexit. If we hold any grown for America's dilemma, we hold it for our own. Just a few weeks ago, at the end of June, I was in Hungary and Poland back to back and on business and both countries, members of the European Union, and it is blatantly evident from the media in country, 
and the conversations on television and the subsequent news releases that have come to light, both are in a battle with Brussels about closing their borders completely, ending their alliance with the European Union. Because the flow of migrants who came up through Syria as a consequence of the Syrian conflict, of course, many of them found resting places on the edges of Hungary and Poland, around Macedonia, and then up through into Germany. And for the Polish people and the Hungarian people who've been glad to take the benefits of the EU, but now want to resist the responsibilities of shared duty. But that is what 53% of the British people voted for as well. And that anguish and fear of the other, that desperate sense of to push aside the very people that in the Old Testament were able to go to the centers of refuge each city was to have within it places to which the migrants could run. The safe houses. So one issue number one is the fear of the other. And issue number two is the economy in fret and stress. This is um, this week's edition of Time Magazine. It's about kids' sport. I'm not particularly interested, um, but <laughs> I thought I'd have a look. This morning in the wee hours, and in there there's a little tiny, can you see the little blue triangle? Can you see that? Looks, it looks like a triangle to you. If you were closer, you'd see that what it actually is is um, 45,485 pounds of sugar. It's, it's, it's in the middle of Times Square in New York, and it's part of a campaign being run by a network of companies, snack companies, to highlight the amount of added sugar that children in America consume every five minutes. Yeah, that lady's gone. <gasps> It's all in your fizzy drinks. It's all in your snacks. Now, you know the battle for sugar. Yeah, we've all been talking about the diet issues with sugar, the health issues with sugar, the awareness of sugar. And you know that there is a huge pressure on food manufacturers to bring down sugar. Yeah? Have you followed that? Or have you been in a cave? You followed it? You, got, you, you know you're aware? Yeah? <laughs> Everything has got less sugar. Let me read you a very interesting review of a book called Black and British, A Forgotten History, just published, and see if you can make the connection. In fact, it'll be pretty explicit. The Royal African Company, established by Charles II, in 1672, eventually is enslaved and transported more Africans than any other company in British history. 
It built slave forts on the African coast. Some, such as Bunce Island in Sierra Leone, furnished with a rape house. Separated from home and family and landed in the West Indies, countless numbers dying of suffocation during the journey, given that the people traffickers were packing the holes to maximum profits. The Africans had no recourse to law, much less the conscience of their captors. The Barbados Slave Code of 1661 stripped Africans of all human rights and set out ways in which they were to be punished to exert control over their labor, mutilation of their face, slitting of their nostrils, castration, and execution. After decades of complaints, the Royal African Company lost its monopoly in 1712. And Olusuga, who's the author, writes, independent traders were turned loose upon the shores of Africa. These traders had argued that the right to enslave Africans was a defining feature of English freedom, and that the Royal African Company had breached their status as free-born Englishmen. Eventually, 11,000 separate British slave trading expeditions resulted in the trafficking of 3.5 million Africans to the New World plantations, the greatest forced migration in modern history until the 20th century. How could Britain, here's the question, how could Britain, a civilized and Christian nation, indulge in rape, torture, killing, and the forced labor of Africans over two centuries? The answer is money. If you had spare cash or could borrow, investment in slavery was a sure winner, never mind slave rebellions or hurricanes that destroyed cane fields, because sugar was king. Uh-oh. Do you get it? Originally a luxury, it became one of the main sources of calories for the British poor. And so many hundreds of thousands of British workers were directly dependent on slavery that it was easy to turn a blind eye to the gross inhumanity. Once insignificant villages, great cities such as Liverpool, Bristol, and Glasgow sprang up on the profits of slavery. But a group of 12 disciples of Christ set out to change things. Now you know the history of William Wilberforce and the fight to end slavery. But did you get the reason why? Why were the slaves important to America? Why were they important to Britain? Why were they important to the Netherlands, to Belgium, and to France? Because we wanted sugar. And somebody had to harvest it. And it wasn't going to be the nice people. Who picks the strawberries? Who gets the gooseberries? Who gathers up the stuff out the fields, way out in the edges of Kent and down in East Sussex? Can you see? Do you see the same thing? See the same issue? A few years ago, many of you will remember a building called Rana Plaza. Does anybody know what I mean by Rana Plaza? 
that lady does. Does anybody else know the gentleman there does, the lady here does, the lady at the back does? Rana Plaza was a building in Bangladesh. It was the largest manufacturing hub for the clothes that people from eight different manufacturers, but the most prominent of all was Primark. It was the largest manufacturing hub for the clothes that are sold at low cost prices in our London stores and our Glasgow stores and our Birmingham stores. When the building collapsed and 1,200 women died instantly, and 1,400 women lost their limbs, arms were severed, legs were severed, when people's lives were crushed, all of a sudden we became aware of something. That for us to pay two pounds for a t-shirt meant somebody else didn't have an equal opportunity to life. For us to have our sugar historically meant that people had to give up their life to feed our addictions for cheapness and to feed our addictions for sweetness, to feed our indulgences. These are political decisions. And they start with us. We, the consumer. When the news of the world collapsed, I hope many of you didn't notice it because you didn't buy it, but never mind. Some of you clearly did. Hands up. Oh, no, I won't. Um. <laughs> but when the news of the world collapsed, it didn't collapse because Rupert Murdoch had had a fit of ethical clarity. A rare moment in history. That was not the reason. It collapsed because literally overnight, because of the mining of Millie Dowler's phone, to find out details as to where this poor, destitute, dead girl was, by media intrusion, 23 advertisers, from the banks to consumer organizations to retailers, decided together to pull their advertising and would never again support that paper. That's why it collapsed. But the question is, would you have bought it the day after. Someone once said that all politics is local. All influence starts with me, my consumer habits, my purchasing, my interests, whether I choose to be a political literate or illiterate whether I seek to know and to understand or I just seek to misunderstand and misrepresent, whether I faced with an asylum seeker, a refugee or a migrant would make the choice to exclude them or to include them. I did an online survey literally just a few days ago on Tuesday on a new app which was asking a series of political questions. It's for an organization called Bite the Ballot, which is a youth engagement, registration, voting, and political intelligence organization. And uh, I was responding to different questions. And one of the questions was, um, uh, if you discovered that uh, someone you had working around you, say, 
I don't know, someone who's a gardener or whatever, or in the office or wherever, somebody working around you uh, was an illegal immigrant, do you believe that in order to settle their position, the state should provide them with accommodation and support until their legal status is resolved? And I said, yes, I do believe. And then I carried on answering other questions. And then it comes to the end of the survey. And at the end of the survey, this very clever new app, which isn't on the market yet, I was uh, being just testing it, uh, gives you the results of what you said and what everybody else said who answered the question. And I was one of just 17% who believed that there should be justice for the migrant, the immigrant, and the less fortunate. What kind of society tested to the extreme on the very issues that Jesus said define Matthew 25? When I was homeless, when I was naked, when I was hungry, when I was thirsty, when I mourned, when I was alone, those are political organization questions because they're also attitudes and responses we make to Jesus. And our politics will come from whether or not we have taken on his mandate to focus on the poor, to be around the uncomfortable, to provide for those on the margins. And here's the question. Do we do that just by being vivid socialists who abandon all things that we could possibly acquire in order to give everything away just so that we can smile well at the end of a Friday? Or do we organize ourselves into places where, as a consequence of our influence and also the affluence we can bring to bear, that we can change the circumstances of people at local, national, and international? And will we engage with that? Does that agenda of Jesus excite us enough? And if you go right back to my first, very first explanation to you about the word for worship and the word for work and the word for political decision making, then you will not see this as somehow odd to your spiritual journey, but central. I want to finish with just uh, one last thought, which is that as we are, as we're weighing up the kind of pressures that come upon us every single day just to do the things we have to do, maybe we feel like the lady who uh, when Theresa May called that rather inept election just a few months ago, um, and she was almost like first to be interviewed by the media, you said, oh, not again. And you get that sense, don't you, that, oh, not again. Or you could say, 
maybe this is the time to tell the truth. Maybe this is the time to pull back from the prejudices and fears and anguishes of division. Maybe it's the time to square up to a world that doesn't have the same borders any longer. To stop pretending that actually we can just cut ourselves away, whether it's cut ourselves away in our town, our city, our community, our village, or our country. We can separate ourselves from the stresses that are beyond us. Because we can't. And if politics gives us the chance, never, and, and I would never argue for a, quotes Christian political party, because there's no such thing. When you, when you go to Sainsbury's or Morrison's, or the smart people here go to Waitrose, I know, can I see some of you with your leather bags. And when we go, you know, wherever you go to buy, whatever you go to buy, you, you don't ask yourself, is this a Christian steak? Has this, been, has this mince been churned over with tenderness, love, and compassion? You don't ask that question. How was the chicken killed? I mean, I mean it's very, you know, there is a humanity about that, but that is not how, de that doesn't define our shopping behavior. So we don't, we don't Christianize supermarkets. When we, when we have an accident and we need to go to a hospital, we don't ask ourselves, is the doctor a Christian? Because otherwise my bone's sticking, I'm not having it touched. No way that nurse is putting it unless she knows John's gospel. No, you don't, we don't do that. <laughs> we don't wait for, at the end of every flashing road sign on the motorway, a verse to appear so that we can feel sanctified as we drive under it. We don't, that, that, come on, life is not about that. So we shouldn't treat politics in the same silly way. Take time to read Matthew 25. Now, if you don't know what's in it, then please just begin reading your Bible at the start, and then you'll get there. But I just, <laughs> as Matthew is the first of the New Testament books, it might not be a bad idea. But you know, Matthew 25 is the defining characteristics of those who are in and those who are out. And guess what? There's not a single mention of sex in it. So if you're worried about that issue, it's not there. Right? Feel liberated about that. But what is there are all these essential political questions. Now, did you know that at 3 o'clock this afternoon, the Notting Hill Carnival paused? A million people on the streets of North Kensington who started their parading and joyful expressions of Caribbean culture, and it's as white as it is brown as it is black these days, a million people who started shaking themselves to bits at three o'clock stopped to remember the victims of Grenfell Tower. Now, some people hyper-politicized that event. And in all the righteous and right fury at a careless council. What was lost was the wonderful generosity of tens of thousands who rushed to bring food and clothes and mattresses and life and joy to the extent that tons, 
tons of food has been wasted and tens of thousands of mattresses have no one to sleep on them. And there is more clothing than you could ever get into the whole borough of Kensington and Chelsea. I'd rather have a society that gives itself away because people say, actually, politics is local. It's about me. But in order to get people to the decision-making status where they can make rightful, responsible, dignified, generous decisions, they have to start where Jesus started. In other words, we have to start where he started. Washing others' feet. If we cannot wash the feet of the other, we cannot feel the personality and need of the other. And as we wash and give our way away, Jesus said that to have life is to give it away. And to hold life is to lose it. That's the good news version. But you know the verse. So to get the politics of spiritual generosity, the avodah, of sacrifice to God, of quality of work, and decision-making to empower them, to get that, we bring our whole selves, our whole selves in the humility of loving the other, then the decisions that are made in the highest places reflect truth and honor. So what do you do? Don't condemn those who sit there. Yes, pray for them and us. But more than pray for us, and them, we talk about the House of Commons as the other place, and the House of Lords is the better place. But you know, we are, we do. Actually, I, I, I led a worship event in Birmingham a few weeks ago, and um, a brand new Labour MP, a black Labour MP from, for Peter Peterborough, was in the in the audience. So I called her up onto the onto the stage, and both of us did the Maori nose pressing together. Well, you know, the Maori people greet each other by rubbing noses. And I said to her, well, you're going to see a world first, brand new Labour MP and an old farty conservative, no, I'm not a conservative, well, you know, whatever, um, crossbencher in the House of Lords here, I have no specific policy. You're going to see the two of us doing the most intimate public thing we can possibly do together, which is to rub our noses. Because those divides are not real. They aren't real. But what is real is the opportunity I long for that you would choose everyone you can influence would choose to understand what you need to understand to make righteous decent dignified tender loving compassionate generous giving faithful honorable decisions at local so that you can make them at national so that you can make them at supranational and some of you will join the political club but all of you are in the political family. You all need to vote. You all need to participate. And you all need to know why. And if you can treat your politics like you treat your work, you'll done something really important. 
Because if you treat your work as you treat your worship, you'll have fulfilled the biblical mandate to worship God with all your heart, soul, mind, and being. Thank you for listening. Thank you.